0: Please, brothers and sisters, turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation, as we'll be looking at chapter 2 and verses 12 to 17. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Please then, brothers and sisters, hear with me the reading of God's Word. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast My name, and you did not deny My faith, even in the days of of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching the one who receives it. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, this week uh, we continue to travel north as we continue to look at the next church that Christ has instructed John to write a letter to. Now, Pergamum was located 40 miles from Smyrna and 10 miles inland from the coast of the Aegean Sea. Uh, Pergamum was the center of some of the most famous uh, pagan cults of that day. We can think of Zeus, Dionysus, as well as Asclepius, to name a few. In fact, Asclepius was the god of healing who garnered much attention from those living in Asia Minor as they flocked to Pergamum so that they might receive this healing. And it's actually this a god of Pergamum, Aslepsius, who was symbolized by a serpent, which in fact now is what you oftentimes see associated with medical buildings and institutions. It's that serpent. Now, the first temple here in Pergamum was erected in 29 B.C. to honor Rome and Augustus. And another monument that was extremely important to the city was a massive altar constructed to Zeus that sat upon the city's highest point. Now, Pergamum was the headquarters also of the Roman government in Asia Minor and at one time was the capital city in Asia Minor. And so what we ought to understand by this is that Pergamum was an overwhelmingly pagan city. And even with that being said, even with that being the case, it shouldn't surprise us then that what we don't see Christ say is for the church to get out. Even though it was an overwhelmingly pagan city, He doesn't tell the church to pack up, to jump ship, and to leave just because all of the residents around them were anti-Christian. Instead, He has a totally different message from the church, doesn't He? He has one that is centered upon the need for the saints in Pergamum to reflect the holiness of God in the city in which they live. As He exhorts the church to remain the church in the world. right? For the church to remain the church no matter where He has placed them. And this is in keeping with Jesus' high priestly prayer, isn't it? In John chapter 17, verse 15. What does He say to the Father? He says, I pray that you do not, not that you take them out of the world, the saints, the church, but that you would keep them from the evil one. And so we're going to consider then what the message is to the letter of the church in Pergamum under three headings this morning. The first heading we will title, Praise. As Jesus opens up this letter by praising the saints for being Faithful witnesses and, and holding fast to His name. Right? Standing strong, standing firm, not willing to, to deny His name. The second point that we're going to look at then would be warning. Right? Although the saints held fast to the name of Christ, they were guilty of allowing some within the church to practice sin right? without pointing it out, recognizing it correcting it, disciplining it. And so, they are in need of repentance. And then the third point that we will consider is promise. For all of those who have a stake in Christ Jesus and His name, they are promised three particular things that we will look at later, which ought to motivate the church to continue into the end and to stand firm in a world that is antithetical to all that Christ commands of His church. Now, in keeping with the pattern established by Christ, what we see again in the opening of this letter is that Jesus instructs John to write to the angel of the church. And as we've also seen with the other letters that we've looked at, uh, Jesus uses a self-designation for Himself that came from chapter 1 and that corresponds to the contents of the letter. In chapter 1, if you remember, Jesus gloriously reveals Himself to John as He is kind of caught up in this vision. And He reveals Himself in great detail as John beholds this exalted Christ. And we're told in chapter 1, verse 16, that what John sees is that from the mouth of Christ came a sharp, two-edged sword. Now, in the description of Jesus from chapter 1, we saw how many of these allusions are being taken from from the book of Daniel. And they're being taken, a lot of them, from the description of the Ancient of Days. As Daniel has this vision of the Ancient of Days, what is the Ancient of Days doing? He is seated upon His throne in judgment over the nations. We also said, if you remember about this phrase, when we looked at it in chapter 1, that it also harkens back to Isaiah, chapter 11 and verse 4, which speaks to us about Christ. And it says this, And He shall strike the earth with a rod of His mouth. And in the book of Revelation, where the church needs to be stirred on to continue to the end in the face of death, right? they need to hear this, do they not? That, that Jesus is the eschatological judge of all the heavens and the earth. That He will judge the unrighteous. Right right now, He stands in in threatening judgment over the entire world. And He will come again to, to judge those who persecute and who harm His church. But brothers and sisters, what we also need to see is that He stands over His church as well. But He stands over His church as Heavenly Father. As the one who disciplines His church when in the family He finds sin. But this is what we should expect. Right. this is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Yet the purpose, brothers and sisters, for the judgment in the household of God is not our destruction, but rather our, our restoration. Right, it's our conformity to Christ-likeness, but this can not be said of those who persecute the church. For Peter will go on to say right after this, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the Gospel of God? What will be their outcome? It will be a frightful outcome, brothers and sisters. Especially those who wield the sword unrighteously. And this is also a connection here that Jesus is, is making in his self-description as the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword coming from his mouth, right? What he's what he's saying to the saints is, "Yes, I know that I've given authority to the sword, to the local governments. But what they need to know, what you need to know, is there is one who is above all governments, who wields a far greater sword than they. Right? That is what he is communicating to them. He is comforting his church by telling them this that." that the one who wields the two-edged sword rightly will come as a just judge and he will come down against all those who wield the sword unrighteously against the saints. And brothers and sisters, this is what the Roman authorities are guilty of. Right? They have been given the authority by God right, to wield the sword, but they were abusing the sword. They were abusing their power. They were using the sword unlawfully. Right? Jesus had, had given it to them. He had invested authority into the local governments as ministers of God to uphold and protect the good and to punish the evil. But they were doing the exact opposite. They were using the sword right, to force Christians to deny the Master who bought them. They were using the sword in a, in a wicked way. And so introducing the letter in this way, Right? Jesus is telling the saints, I know that you are being mistreated by those who have the power. But I want you to know it's only temporary. Right? Their power is only temporary. Their wielding of the sword is only temporary. For the just judge over every judge and every earthly ruler will come again. And when He comes, He will bring about the destruction of those who seek you harm. And brothers and sisters, this is not what the church needed to hear as they are being persecuted, as the sword is being wielded unjustly against the saints by the government. Right? Do we not see in the reading of the text today that what Jesus said was about to occur in Smyrna, which was death, was already happening. It was already occurring in Pergamum. And here then is that praise that we see Jesus then gives to the church. As He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast My name, and you did not deny My faith, even in the days of Antipas, My faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. We need to see Jesus has John write this to reassure the saints That Jesus knows all that's transpiring in that church. He's writing them to tell them, I know what's going on. I know where you are in the world. I know the inhabitants of the land in which you are in. I know your struggles. I know how you are being persecuted and how you are being killed for My name. Jesus tells them this to bring consolation to the church. That even if, no one else cares about what's going on. If no one else is willing to speak up and to stand up for the, uh, to the Roman authorities for their unlawful use of the, that sword against the Christians, they are not to worry for, for Christ one day will. Right? Christ will. Right? So that they don't have to fear even though the entire city stands against them so long as they maintain their faithful witness to Christ. And brothers and sisters, I want you to see this as well. For these words are words of consolation to us as well. Whenever you stand up in this world, whenever you hold fast to your Christian witness and defend Christ and the Gospel and His church, even if the whole world stand against you, you are not alone for Christ stands there beside you. right? He stands there with you. That is what He is telling the saints here in Pergamum. They are not alone. And yet, Pergamum wasn't just any city, was it? No, it was an extremely wicked, evil city. Pergamum is the city which Christ calls Satan's throne. How so? How could this be Satan's throne? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Remember, the the city of Pergamum is where the Roman government took center stage in Asia Minor. This is where the Roman government was set up. This was their main headquarters. In addition to that, this was the epicenter, Pergamum was, of pagan worship. Pergamum was was a central hub of all sorts of pagan cults that were going on in this day. Perhaps even Jesus says that this is Satan's throne because He's referencing what we'll read later in Revelation chapter 13, verse 2, where we're told that Satan gave the beast his throne with great authority. And so Jesus is referencing this as Satan ultimately working through the ungodly Roman government here in order to pressure the church and to persecute the church to engage in emperor worship and to deny Christ, and to conform to societal practices. But what we also need to see is that it's not just the Roman government who is persecuting the saints in Pergamum. Right? Likewise, it is the citizens of Pergamum as well. You see, what would happen is that there would be pagan festivals, pagan feasts. You, there would be times of sacrifice to the, to the gods in that city. And all of the inhabitants of that city uh, were bound and in, 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 uh, expected to offer up sacrifice. But when they didn't offer up sacrifice on a local level, what ended up happening is that those inhabitants of that land would turn them over to the Roman government. Right? They would go to Rome and they would say, They're refusing to sacrifice. And now, once you are brought before the Roman authorities, what happens? You only have two choices. That is either deny Christ, proclaim Caesar as Lord, or die. And what would happen to the saints if they did not deny the faith is what happened to Antipas, Christ's faithful witness. Now, we don't know much about Antipas, but a legend about him that appears in history details for us the extremely malicious and cruel death that Antipas suffered for the sake of his Savior. As the story goes, Antipas was roasted alive inside of a brazen bull. Now, a brazen bull would have been a a hollowed out bronze bull that was used kind of as a torture chamber for Christians. And we're told that this happened then under the reign of Domitian, that Antipas was placed inside this hollow-out bronze bull. He was locked inside. And then a fire was lit underneath the bronze bull so as to heat the metal so that Antipas literally roasted alive inside of this bronze bull. Now, brothers and sisters, we can't imagine a death such as that. We can't even imagine the internal struggle that one goes through when facing a death like that. Thinking to themselves, "Just all I have to do is this one thing. Just just deny Christ, confess Caesar. I don't really have to believe it. But then I can escape this cruel and excruciating death. But this is why Jesus praises them. Because although the pressure was great, although the temporal advantages and the temptation to forsake Christ to escape punishment was great, they they surely knew that if I just do this, these barbaric acts against us will stop, yet they did not deny Christ. They continued to hold fast to, to His name and they would not deny the faith. And they did this in the place where Satan dwells. Now, we're told at this time that Satan dwelt in, in Pergamum. But I might ask you today, where is it that Satan dwells today? Right? Where might we say Satan's throne is set up in our own day and age, in the 21st century? I think we should probably be able to say that Satan's throne is all over. Right? Satan's throne... I think is set up in universities and colleges, right, all around the world, as they teach godless ideologies to the youth, right, causing them to forsake Christ. We see Satan's throne still set up in governments today, do we not? Right, governments who support ungodly. Right? Laws and legislation. We see it in governments in foreign lands who still use the sword unrighteously to persecute, to beat down, and to kill Christians in their lands. I think really we can say that Satan's throne is set up in the heart of everyone who does not love the triune God. Because it is Satan who has dominion over them. Right? It is Satan who has set up his throne in their hearts as He controls and dominates their thinking and their desires as He is the possessor of their souls. We have to see, brothers and sisters, if Christ has not set up His throne in your heart, then you can be assured that Satan has. If Christ has not set up His throne in your heart, Satan has. And Satan is using His throne to to throw temptation constantly at his church. Right, to get us, to fall into temptation, to stumble, to destroy our souls. But nobody said the Christian life would be easy, did we? Right, nowhere can you say that Christ tells you that the Christian life will be easy. In fact, he says explicitly the opposite, does he not? We can think to Luke chapter fourteen, verses twenty five to thirty three. Here Jesus talks about the high cost of being his disciple. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? That comes on the heels of saying, if you want to come after Me, if you do not hate your father or your mother or your sister or your brother or your very own life, you are not worthy to be My disciple. That doesn't sound like an easy Christian life, does it? What he's saying is that the cost to follow after me is great because the cost is your life. The cost is your life. If not figuratively, for some of you it might be physically as well. It might cost you your very life. Antipas understood this but I'm not sure that there are many Christians today who understand what Antipas understood. Today we, we live in a society in which people want to profess the name of Christ, but live with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. So many Christians, especially young Christians, feel as if they're missing out on so much because they are Christians. Look at what my friends get to do, but I can't do it because I'm a Christian. They feel like they're losing out on something. But brothers and sisters, we need to see that this is what the Christian life calls us to. The Christian life is not a life of self-indulgence. That's the life the world offers you. The Christian life is a life of self-denial. Right? This life is not a life about your own will and desires, but rather the Christian life is a life about the will and desires of God. Many of you here today who have been called out of the world can attest to what I'm about to say. And that is this. And for you younger folks maybe who are thinking, I wish I could do what my friends do, but because I'm a Christian I can't, I want you to see what the older folks here could attest to, and that is that the world does not fulfill you. The world cannot fulfill you. It cannot satisfy your soul. Everything it offers to you, it will fall short. And so you need to understand, you're not missing out on anything that your friends get to experience. Nothing. what you need to understand as a believer, as a Christian, is that although the world does not satisfy. Although the world does not fulfill, there is one who does. Right? Christ promises and Christ delivers. Christ satisfies and Christ will fulfill. What this world promises, especially to our youth, is an exciting life. But what it doesn't tell you is the fine print in that contract. Which is that after that exciting life, you will go into eternal damnation forever. But Christ is the one who offers unto us eternal life. And so, brothers and sisters, will you be a faithful witness for Christ here on earth in this godly, godless world? Right? Are you willing to forsake all for Christ no matter the consequences to hold fast to His name? And to not deny the faith. To you who are, I want you to see how Christ views you. Look at how Christ addresses Antipas. And all who like Antipas hold fast to His name. He says to Antipas, the Antipas is who in verse 13. My faithful witness. Oh, brothers and sisters, what an honor it would be to proudly be claimed by Jesus Christ our Lord as His very own. That He might say of us, you are my faithful witness. And if you are a believer here today, then in fact is what you are. You are a faithful witness to Christ. You are His. He has claimed you as His own, as His Son has redeemed you by His blood. And so, brothers and sisters, let us not disappoint our Savior. This world already has too many worldly Christians. Let us not add to that number, but instead, let us remember how Christ came and He suffered and He died and how He identified Himself with us in those things. And so let us not, neither in life or death, fear to identify ourselves with our Savior. This leads us then to our second point, which is warning. Warning. Please look with me, starting at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, brothers and sisters, we need to understand what he's referencing comes to us from the book of Numbers. In fact, it's in Numbers chapter 22 in which uh, Balak sees what the Israelites have just done to the Amorites. And he is afraid that they're going to come and defeat him and take his land. And so he calls for Balaam. And he asks Balaam to curse the Israelites. Now, God tells Balaam, you can't curse the Israelites. And in fact, He causes Balaam to, to bless the Israelites instead. And so what does Balaam do? Right? He, he finds a new strategy to get around this. And what is that new strategy? What is that new approach? It was to send the daughters of Moab into the Israelite camp to tempt the Israelites with sexual immorality and idolatry. And in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1, we're told this. That the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. In verse 31 of the book of Numbers, in verse 16, we read, Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. Now, what we learn then in our text today is that there are some in Pergamum uh, who hold to this same teaching of Balaam. Which is what? Well, we're told that he taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and commit or practice immorality. Christ also says then that you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, what I would like us to see is that in the English translations as you're reading this, it might seem like these are two different groups. Like there's one group that holds to the teaching of, of Balaam and there's another group that holds to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. But what's being described here is, is just one, one group. We actually see this, you'll see this kind of brought out more in verse 15 where it begins, So also, that can also be translated um, in the same way. Right? So you have those who who uh, taught the the, the the doctrine of Balaam, in the same way the Nicolaitans are, are doing the very same thing with their teaching, and so they are. What Christ is doing is he's identifying the Nicolaitans with Balaam, right? So the Nicolaitans were a group within the church who were teaching people in the church that it was okay to attend pagan festivals, right? That it was okay to attend these festivals where sexual immorality and idolatry ensued. Right, the Nicolaitans were antinomians. The, the Nicolaitans thought it was okay to, to commingle with the world, to be friends with the world. But in doing so, they were perpetuating demonic strategies following after the Balaamites, which would ultimately destroy Christ's church. Because a worldly church, brothers and sisters, we need to understand, ceases to be a Church. Right? A church that, that takes on the traits and the characteristics and the persona of the world has lost its reason to exist, which is to stand apart from the world, right for the purposes of the Lord, to be light in darkness, to proclaim the Gospel, to look totally different from the godless world in which we live in. But brothers and sisters, if we are honest with ourselves, Is not the Nicolaitan spirit rampant in churches today? There are so many Christians in in congregations all around the world. Perhaps there are Christians here today who live with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Now, there is one differentiation that I want to make so that we do not think that the Scripture is contradicting itself. Here we see that they are not to eat this food sacrificed to idols. But if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Christians are told they're at liberty to eat food sacrificed to idols that was sold on the market. But here's where the context matters. They were not to eat this meat sacrificed to idols because this meat was being eaten with godless pagans during pagan festivals. So they are eating this meat sacrificed to idols during the celebration of pagan deities. And so Christ is saying, have no part of that. That is, that is sin. Now the Nicolaitans understood what would happen if they didn't participate. Right? The Nicolaitans knew that the citizens of Pergamum can out us if we don't celebrate this with us. We could be brought before Rome. We could face death. And so what do the Nicolaitans do? And what do they teach? It's better just to be friends with the world. Right? Be on good terms with the world. Right? Be friends with the world. But I need us to see that, that what's being described here, though, isn't a matter of Christian liberty. Right? What's being described here isn't a matter of just your Christian conscience. What is talking about here is just blatant outright sin. Right? What, what is being spoken about here was idolatry that they were not to participate in by eating that meat sacrificed to idols in these pagan festivals, with these pagan ungodly unbelievers. And think about the effect, brothers and sisters. Think about the effect that the doctrine and the practice of the Nicolaitans had on a church. Think about what that effect is on churches even today. Think about what the effect will be upon new converts. About converts maybe who are struggling on converts who are weak in the faith, this kind of doctrine, this kind of practice could destroy their very souls. And so we see why God hates this so much. And why He calls upon them to repent. And so He threatens them. Right? He says, repent. Why? Because they didn't stop it. They didn't discipline these sinning members. They didn't identify these men. Cast them out. And cast out their ungodly doctrine. And He tells them, repent or I will judge you. He will inflict temporal judgments upon His church. He will remove His hand of grace so that you will be afflicted in their present circumstances and situations. And ultimately, He will destroy all of those who are unwilling to repent of their sin. And brothers and sisters, we need to say, see that the same warning rings true for us today. Right? Christians are so accommodating to this world's practices. Right, Christians, probably yesterday night, in churches all across this nation, right, were in bars getting drunk with their friends, saying, this is just what people do, what's the big deal? I mean, we're in the month of June, right, what is June now being celebrated for, right? Pride month, right? I'm willing to guess that there are a good number of people who profess Christ and who go to churches, probably around here, who are at Pride Fest and all these Pride celebrations, saying, what's the big deal? But a Christian, you need to understand that what the world sees as harmless, Christ abhors as evil. Right? What the, what the world loves and practices and esteems, we need to see our Lord despises. Right? What is it that this world elevates? The desires of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. The pride of life. But I ask you this, how does that in any way comport the true Christianity? What are we told? Not to follow after the desires of the flesh, but to be led by the Spirit. What does Christ say? That the the sin of, of lust is soul damning so much so that He says, if your eye causes you to sin, you pluck it out. So you can go to heaven at least with one eye rather than be cast into hell with two. What does He tell us? He puts down the proud. He exalts and gives grace to the humble. So brothers and sisters, let us see. Let us not model our lives after this world. Let us not be envious of the things that the world has. For anything they have, we do not need, nor shall we want. Right? This is what James says in, in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to make themselves a friend with the world is an enemy with God. You see, you can't have both. Being friends with the world is going to cause you to take your eyes off of Christ. So I ask you here today, are there any here who have become friends with the world and who now have taken their eyes off of Christ? If you have, as Christ tells the church, I exhort you, repent. right? Repent. Examine your heart. Every one of you here today see where there is sin and ungodliness and worldliness in your life and turn from it. Get away from it. Abhor it as God abhors it. Stop mingling the temple of the living God with the filthiness and the sin of this world. Turn to Christ. Pray. Ask for help. One of the ways in which Christ helps His church today is through these warning passages. He helps us through that. He also helps His church by chastising us and disciplining us. This is a means He uses to draw us back to Himself. But I want us to also see that what Christ is also doing is that He is strengthening us even here today to fight against the world. This is what John says in his first epistle, doesn't he? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Right now, the Spirit is inside of you if you are a believer and helps you to fight against all worldliness and ungodliness. But we must ask, right? we must beg, we must plead, we must cry out. Recognize full and total dependence upon Christ. And also recognizing what the world is and not wanting to have any part of it. Brothers and sisters, we must love our husband so much that we are unwilling to commit spiritual adultery with any other. But also know this, that you cannot do it in your own strength and by your own might. This is why we have to continue to flee to Christ and ask Christ for His strength. Ask Christ for His power. Ask Christ for His fortitude. Ask Christ for His protection. We need Him in order to do this in the world. Because every single one of us, apart from the grace of God, would walk into hell every single day of our lives. And for the one who belongs to Christ, who by His grace have been made His, He promises then to us three things. Three things that you cannot earn but rather three things that Christ earned by His life and His death. And three things which He graciously bestows upon His people. Look with me please at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Christ here promises, we see three things. The first thing he promises is hidden manna. Now that one shouldn't be hard for us to interpret, right? Who is the true manna from above? Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus says this in John chapter 6 verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so what is it that Christ is conveying to the saints here? To the One who who conquers. What is He promising to them? Brothers and sisters, He's he's promising to them Himself and all of the benefits that flow through the grace in Christ. He is promising the fruits of grace in their fullness in Him. That is what He is promising to the saints. And just as the manna in Exodus chapter 16 supernaturally fell from the sky by God's grace, so too now that hidden manna which is Christ and all His benefits supernaturally flow to us graciously by our Lord. The next promise then is what? It's a white stone. A white stone. Now there's not one thing that we can really point to and say, this is what the white stone means. But I do think that there are a few things that it might be referring to. Okay? First of all, what we need to understand in ancient practice in the court of law, a white stone often meant acquittal and a black stone meant guilty. What else does white symbolize throughout the scripture? Right? It also symbolizes purity, right? What else do we see then? A white stone also in ancient times was used almost as a pass. It was used almost as a ticket by some to get into an event. And so we see kind of these these three things. It's a white stone of acquittal. It's white which symbolizes purity. It's a a white stone that allows you to, to get into some event. So what is Jesus saying? Well, what he's saying to the one who overcomes is, I will acquit you before the world. I will wash you white as snow. I will remove all of your sins and I will grant you eternal fellowship with me in heaven. That is what he is conveying by promising this white stone to the saints. And then lastly, he promises a new name that is written on that stone that no one knows except those who receive it. Brothers and sisters, that name is the name of Christ. Christ. That name is the name of our Lord. It is the name that you need to enter into eternal fellowship with Him. It is that name that is spoken of in Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 and 4. Here we read, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and what His name will be on Their foreheads. We're going to have the name of the Lord not literally written on our foreheads, but figuratively, spiritually, we have the name of Christ sealed to us. We are His right now as we speak. The name of Christ is, is written on us. And this new name is an indication of our new status in Christ. And it's only given to those who will experience that end time presence with Christ forever. And so what are all three of these things? The hidden manna, the white stone, the new name on the stone. What are these three things? They're all promises that Christ is giving His church that no matter what you endure, no matter what you suffer, do not worry, do not fear, for you have the promise of eternal life with Me forever. That's what He's telling to the church in Pergamum. Now, the church in Pergamum had many earthly reasons to compromise, did they not? We named a bunch of them. We today, as the church, have many reasons to compromise. Many earthly reasons. Financial reasons. Maybe for reasons of family and friends. You don't want to have any discord amongst your family or your friends, so you compromise. Maybe it's because you just don't want to deal with the the stress or friction that can come along with being a Christian with your neighbors and in public and in society. Perhaps you have a pressure to compromise because you just want to be viewed as as normal in this world, not a a crazy Christian. You want to be someone who's, who's considered to be smart by your neighbors and those around you. But just as Jesus seeks to ask the saints in Pergamum, by providing these three reasons, I likewise ask you here today, as we looked at the rewards from this earth and the rewards from Christ, which reward is better? Which reward is better? Is it the reward that the world will give you, which is temporal, earthly enjoyments which will end up in condemnation and eternal death? Or is it for a time, temporally, suffering, pain, and trial, all the while Christ stands beside you, blessing you, strengthening you, preserving you through it all, and yet, when He returns again, He will grant you everlasting, eternal, full, joyous, complete fellowship with Him for all of eternity? Let me ask you, which would you choose? Which would you choose? Because you can't choose both. You can't have both rewards. Only one. So as we draw to a close this morning, then brothers and sisters, I ask you, can the Lord this day, like He did Antipas, claim you as His own? If He returned, would He say, you are my faithful witness? Or would He say that we are like the Nicolaitans who follow after the teaching of the Balaamites, dishonoring the name of our Lord, living ungodly, teaching bad doctrine, practicing sinful things which God has condemned. We need to see, brothers and sisters, that the world will use you and abuse you and it will spit you out. The world does not care for you, neither does it love you. You're just one of many. But know this, you who are Christ's, that He has numbered His elect. He knows each and every one of you, for He has chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world. He has sent His Son to redeem you. He cares for you. He loves you like no love anyone in this world could ever show unto you. As Father, we've seen today how He tenderly cares for His church in Pergamum. How He praises them. How He warns them. How He promises to them things. How He disciplines them and how He restores them. Brothers and sisters, He does the same to us here today. And He does it out of His infinite and abundant love that He has for the saints. And so I exhort all of you here today. Do not love this world for what you and I have in Christ is far greater. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the message that You have given to John to reveal to the saints in Pergamum. Uh, We thank You, Father, that Through Your sovereign grace, You have elected us, You have called us, You have redeemed us, and You have made us by Your grace Your faithful witnesses. We ask, Lord, that You would continue to strengthen us and grant to us courage to never deny the name of our Lord. Lord, we likewise thank You for Your warning. We ask, Lord, for forgiveness for the times in which we have compromised with the world. And yet, we are so grateful that You have bestowed upon us these marvelous promises of eternal fellowship with the Lord that we will have when Christ returns to gather His church at the end of this age. So, Father, we come before You praying all these things in Christ's name. Amen.